This morning, we're going to uh, be wrapping up Nebuchadnezzar's testimony in Daniel 4. We're going to focus on the verses that Bruce just read, where he said, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar. I don't, he had four different ways to pronounce his word. Isn't that weird how that works? I do it too. My family let me know a couple of weeks ago when I did it, so I decided to share that with you. Uh, yeah. Dad, you said Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, great. What else did you learn? Uh, yeah. Apparently nothing. Uh, stinks. Uh, and they learn. Uh, but anyway, so last Sunday we, we looked at uh, the prophetic second dream that Nebuchadnezzar experienced, uh, which described his kingdom, you know, his vast rule. It described his uh, pride. It described his humiliation. It described briefly his conversion and his restoration. So the dream came and it had all of those components to it. And uh, this morning we're going to look at these things actually unfold. We're going to see the dream fulfilled or come to pass. And, uh, and then we'll kind of just work through that text and wrap up uh, the chapter. I, I feel that we need to probably pray again before we take a look at God's Word. Father, we uh, just humbly acknowledge your presence and your power, your sovereignty, our weakness, our lack of attentiveness, uh, our fatigue, all of our weakness, Lord. We just uh, want to bring those things before you, Lord, and ask that you move in power, uh, that your word would take seat in our hearts, that the Spirit would take the word and make us a little more like Jesus, that the Spirit would overcome uh, the problems and issues that we have uh, in the flesh. And so, uh, teach us today and uh, grow us and make us a little more like Jesus. We call it sanctification. Just sanctify us a little bit more. Knit us uh, to you uh, in a deeper way and knit us together in fellowship. Just accomplish, Lord, not that we have to uh, give you permission to do this, as so many think that you can't do anything unless we allow you to, but we just uh, we want to acknowledge that uh, we want to just submit to you, Lord, and we want you to do your work and to have your way and for your will to be accomplished. And we know it will, but we yield ourselves to you now. And may you receive all the glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to look at several things this morning. We're going to handle this section um, kind of like in outline form again like we did last week. Uh, I think I have six, five or six things for you this morning. The first thing that we want to notice from the passage is the king's pride. The king's pride, verses 28 through 30. Okay? Remember, he had the dream and it kind of illustrated all of this stuff and, and at the end of... Uh, at the end of the text that we looked at in verse 27 last week, we looked at uh, the fact that Daniel basically said, you know, you need to repent of your ways and all of this. The implication was that the judgment and discipline and the things that we're reading about here could be averted if he repented. And we're going to see here that he did not. So, first thing first, uh, the king's pride, verses 28 through 30. It says, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. 
speaking of the chastisement, going you know, out and grazing with the cattle and all of that stuff, all of what the dream prophesied came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. And verse 29 says, at the end of 12 months, and here's kind of the, all the stuff happened now, here's how the king describes how it all came to fruition. Um, at the end of 12 months, he was walking, speaking of Nebuchadnezzar, on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, he's speaking to himself or to somebody nearby, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Now, here's what's incredible about this. Look at what it says in verse 29, at the end of 12 months. So there was a one-year period of time between the prophetic dream and warning to the actual chastisement and judgment. And what that tells us is that God gave Nebuchadnezzar 12 months to repent, 12 months to respond uh, to his own pride and to God's merciful offer of grace and forgiveness through Daniel at the, what, at verse 27, 12 whole months. So, so this chastisement, this judgment didn't befall him two weeks after he had the dream and how it was described and interpreted. He it, it had 12 whole months. This uh, act of delaying, if you will, divine justice shows that God is truly merciful and gracious, that he is slow to anger and patient, that he is abundant in loving kindness and truth, as it says, lays out in Psalm 86.15. Now, I would say that Nebuchadnezzar was receiving mercy and delayed judgment for longer than that, really, if you want to think about it, but here we get an example. He warns him, and then 12 months go by. That's a pretty significant amount of time for Nebuchadnezzar to ponder what he's heard, what's happened, and to, uh, to repent. Uh, we might say that the prophetic dream and warning uh, was an act of God's kindness toward him. This is what's going to happen to you if you don't repent. Now, over 12 months, I wonder if he did what we often do, and then we just, we, we hear the word and we take it kind of seriously at first. We're a little bit startled by it, but then as time goes by, we kind of forget and we take for granted what we've heard and, and we don't, it doesn't really shock us anymore and we don't care and we uh, presume upon the Lord that he's just going to continue to sustain us and to be merciful and all that, even though we're not responding to him rightly. I, I suspect that's what was going on with Nebuchadnezzar. I think at first he kind of took it serious, but then as time went on, he just, ah, nothing's going to happen. Isn't that what the world does today? You know, the gospel goes out, and the gospel is a double-edged sword. It's got uh, a damning aspect to it, hell, punishment, sin. It's got a glorious, gracious aspect to it, redemption, salvation in Christ. And when people hear the whole thing, they're like, eh, it's not going to happen, you know, and maybe for a while if it happens at all, and I've got time, you know, and we presume and presume and presume upon the Lord. I think that's what he was doing. And then, boom, 12 months later, you know, he's turned into a barn animal or whatever. 
Sinclair Ferguson wrote, not only did God send Nebuchadnezzar dreams to disturb him and a Daniel to instruct and warn him, but he also gave him an extended period of months during which he could have turned from his sin. Wow. Verse 30 describes the moment when Nebuchadnezzar's pride reached its pinnacle, its highest point. You know, he's out on his balcony and he's surveying the city of Babylon, the capital of Babylonia, his massive, massive kingdom. Uh, he's out there on the balcony, he's surveying the whole thing, probably noticing, I don't, I don't want to put too much conjecture in here, but he's obviously looking out over the city, and I'm thinking that one of the things that he saw was probably his grandest achievement at all, of all, which was the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, um, this incredible structure with just plants, it was just beauty, it was actually became one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So, you know, here he is on his balcony, and he's looking out over this amazing city. He's looking out over the New York skyline, if you will, and he's noticing his accomplishments and the things that he's built. There's the hanging gardens. There's this building and structure. There's that sculpture that I had put up over there. There's this, there's that. He's just surveying all of it. He's taking it all in, and, and what he does here is he begins to boast. But he ain't boasting the right way. He's not attributing all of it to the Most High. He's attributing it to his own might, to his own ability, to his own power, to his own wealth. He literally says to himself, uh, and I guess this would be a paraphrase, but he says something of this nature, look at this great city which I have built by my own power, my own might. I built it, and he, and he kind of implies or says in a way that's, you know, not like perfectly directed at the point, but he, he kind of says or implies that I did all this for myself as my royal residence. Like as if his balcony is his throne and then everything that he can see out there is subjected to him in his kingdom and there for his glory, there for his honor, there for his praise. He literally says that it's a symbol, the city that he built there, it's a symbol of his glory and majesty. And of course I was thinking how many times I've done something similar on a much smaller scale. I mean, have you ever, you know, built something or, or um, um, had a project that you did and, uh, you know, and you, you say to yourself or to others, look at what I put together. Look at what I Built and sometimes it's it's very um, innocent, you know, and, and it, it, you know you're not standing on a balcony with all this pride, and you know I remember Rachel's mother used to, uh, you know, she would do something, she would uh, crochet because I used to call it knitting, and apparently there's a huge difference, and then the crochet police come out when you use the wrong term and they whip you, um, but she would crochet something or she would put something together and she would hand it to you like as a gift. And she would say, look at what I did. And I was just like, that's pretty, that's pretty special. She would say that all the time. Now, I, I, she, you know, she wasn't pounding her chest or anything. Now, haven't we all done this? You know, if you own a business or something like that, you know, and God has been good to you, and somehow you think, look at, look at this little empire that I've created for myself. My ingenuity, my hard work, my blood, sweat, and tears my time, my time, my talent. Look what I've built for myself. And look at how I provide for my family. And, 
you know, and all this. Haven't we done that? Makes you wonder why some businesses go out of business, doesn't it? Maybe, maybe when men and women build businesses and revel in their own glory and effort, God stops sending customers. Could be. Or maybe, you know, after examining your bank account, this would never happen with me. But maybe it could in the future. I don't know, Lord willing. But maybe you, after you've examined your bank statement or your investment portfolio, I don't know if any of you have an investment portfolio, um, but you could look over these things and you could say, look at what I earned. Look at, look at what my smarts were able to put together. Look at this nest egg that I've built. Look at my wealth, right? I'm not sure if a lot of us say those things here. We're typically a, a blue-collar church, and you know, if you have an investment portfolio, that's cool. Maybe we should all have an investment portfolio. The Apostle Paul Rogers there is nodding his head yes, because he's the financial peace guru. Uh, but, you know, you could look over your bank statement. You could look over your bank account. You could look, at, look over anything, any possession, anything that you've been involved in, and you could easily say, look at what I've done. Uh, maybe you walk through your house, and, and you look around, and you look at the... Uh, uh, you know, you look at the decorations, and, and you look at the, the tile, and you look at the furniture, and, uh, you know, and you, you think to yourself, well, my talent, my hard work, my design skills, uh, you know, look at what I did. Look at what I put together. Look at my little kingdom. Maybe you look at your children, and you say, wow, we have great kids, don't we, honey? We have done such a great job with them, and they are just Model little Christians. Yeah. I tell you what, if your kid is a model little Christian, <laughs> you better do some investigating. <laughs> Probably a smokescreen. Uh, right? Something's happening behind the veil. Uh, I'm not saying it's bad to have, you know, good Christian children. But sometimes parents look at their kids and say, wow, look at my kids. They're so great. You know, they're so wonderful. Why is that? Because they're a reflection of me. <laughs> yeah. Pastors do this. Look at the ministry that I built. You know, and if you don't have a very large ministry, and I know this from personal experience, we don't have a massive mega church or anything like that. Uh, but there's an awful temptation to boast about the theology. Look at my theology. I'm reformed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that was freaky. You know, or I'm this or I'm that. You know, uh, We might have a small church, but I tell you what, we're way more biblical than those big churches. Could be true, but I don't... <laughs> You can boast about anything, anything that you've been involved in, any sort of accomplishment, any, any job, any talent. You, you know, there's a, there's a propensity there because we're sinners. We have a sinful nature. There's a propensity there to, to boast about those things. And so we're not that much unlike Nebuchadnezzar, are we? Right? We look at Nebuchadnezzar, what an idiot. Really? Do we not behave the way that he behaves at times. Do we not swell with pride? 
and, uh, you know, and, and behave like him. Maybe we don't have balconies, uh, but we certainly do these things in a number of ways. And I tell you what we need to do as, as believers. We need to remember to give credit and glory to God in all things for who we are, you know, like for who, we've, who we're becoming. It's his work. I tell you what, if he pulls his hand off you, you go back to, to being a, a gutter dweller. It's his work. It's his power in your life. You're only becoming like Jesus because of him. And if he stops doing it, you ain't going to be like Jesus. We need to give credit to God and praise to God and glory to God for who we are, for what we accomplish. I'm not telling you that when you, you know, you don't actually do anything. Well, you're not sitting on your hands. You're out working and all that. But where do you think that talent came from? Where do you think those abilities came from? They came from God. So we need to give him credit for the accomplishments uh, that we're involved in. We need to give him credit for what we have. As it is written in Colossians 1.16, for by him, okay, for by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Speaking of Jesus, let, let me boil down what that verse says. The house you purchased, it don't belong to you. And it don't belong to a bank. It belongs to God. The money in your bank account and in your wallets, and I tell you what, this is where the greatest confusion is, because even as Christians, we tend to think that this is all our money, and we can do with it what we want, and if I want to give a little to the church, I will. If I want to hang on to a lot of it, I'll do whatever I want to do. That's our mentality. That's our attitude, but I'm here to tell you this morning, that money is not yours. That money is on loan to you. You are a steward of that money, and money has been given to you for the purpose of you managing it well for the Lord and bringing in much glory through it. Do I get this perfect? No. Do, all, do we all get this perfect? No, that's why we have FPU at the church. If we got it all perfect, we wouldn't even know who Dave Ramsey is or Nebuchadnezzar. The money in your bank account, in your wallets, it's not your money. It belongs to God. The shoes on your feet. I mean, really, if you want to split hairs, the shoes on your feet. Those Nikes, those are God's, and he prefers Air Jordans. What that passage, what Colossians 1.16 means is that it, all of it belongs to God. Even the shoes that are getting cranked out in some foreign country, all of it is his. Everything. There isn't anything in all creation that does not belong to him. All of it is his. What about, what about the reprobate? which is code word for those who will never be saved. Do they belong to God? Yes. What about the devil? Does he belong to God? Yes. He's God's devil. That's not an irreverent thing to say. The devil is a created creature. What about hell? Does it belong to God? Yes. There is nothing that does not belong to him. Nothing. This is what by him, through him, and for him means. It means God owns every person, God owns every place, every thing, 
He owns it all, and all of it exists and will redound for his glory, as it says in, I believe, 1 Corinthians. It's all for him. When we boast about ourselves, when we boast about our accomplishments, when we boast about our possessions, we put the spotlight on ourselves rather than on the creator, rather than on the true owner, rather than on the true, the real provider. All those things come from him. We put it all on ourselves rather than on the one who gave it all and created it all. And what do we do? We become like Nebuchadnezzar. As Christians, our number one task is to glorify God. That's, that's what the Christian life, if you want to boil down the Christian, wait a minute, Pastor Phil, I thought you said it was about heaven. No. No, it's not. I thought you said it was all about God's love or whatever. That's what being a Christian, no, 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 no. You're, you're misunderstanding the big point. To be a Christian is to be about God's glory. That is the goal. And heaven and all of those things exist to bring us joy and elation and much praise and glorification of him. The good things that you have in your life are there to strike you with such gratitude and thanks that you glorify and praise God. And guess what? The bad things are there for that purpose too. And that's just a tougher pill to swallow. But it's true. So I think that we're more like Nebuchadnezzar than we would care to admit to. Amen? We need to be about God's business and about God's glory. So the king's pride, right? Out on the balcony, looking over it all. Look at all of this. Look at everything that I have done. All for my majesty. Second thing, God's sentence carried out. Verses 31 through 33. While the words were still in the king's mouth. While he's boasting, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be uh, with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you. Comma, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Verse 33, immediately after that pronouncement came, immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. Homie needed a pedicure. While Nebuchadnezzar was reveling in his own glory and and boasting about his power and his palace and all of it, a voice fell from heaven, probably the angel or angels who spoke to him during the second dream, right? Remember the angel, a voice came from heaven. There was an angel speaking to him, pronouncing the judgment that would come. Probably the same angel or plural angels, and this time they weren't speaking to him through a prophetic dream. They literally spoke directly to him. How freaky would that be? Yeah, we all have dreams and stuff, and we think we hear things or see things, and they can be pretty frightening and and scary. Speaking of that, all the horror movies are on TV right now. One that comes to mind with a lot of dream 
interaction would be nightmare on Elm Street. Don't fall asleep. That would be a frightening thing to have, to have an angel or a heavenly voice come to you while you're dreaming, but to have a voice literally boom into your ears while you're awake, cognitive, looking around, speaking to yourself or to someone else. It's a whole different thing here. The voice declared, this is what he heard, that the day of chastisement, the sentence, the day of judgment had come and would be carried out. The sentence would be carried out immediately. There was no, okay, go ahead and respond, Nebuchadnezzar. Well, I'm sorry, I probably should have taken the warning seriously, and there was nothing, there was no interaction from him. He couldn't do anything about it. All he could do was suffer the chastisement because of his own decisions, because of his foolishness. The voice reiterated the sentence in verses 31 and 32, the fourfold judgment of God. We went over it last week. Here's how the angel describes it. The kingdom has departed from you. That's expulsion. You're getting kicked out. You're getting kicked out of the place that you were just boasting about. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. That's isolation. You're not going to be hanging around with human beings. You're not going to have your servants or your wife or wives. You're not going to have your children there. And believe it or not, that was actual blessing because all his kids were a disaster. Uh, you're not going to have any human contact or anything like that. And if you do have any, quite frankly, it's going to be like they're trying to feed you. It's going to be weird. You're going to be isolated, separated from your people. He continues, you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and uh, you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And he ate grass like an ox or whatever. Madness, that's the losing of one's mind because normal, regular people do not walk around in a pasture on all fours and eat grass. I have to admit, during my party days, I probably did that a number of times, but I wasn't in my right senses. I know I woke up in a field or two. But this is not normal behavior, okay? Normal behavior is you go out into a pasture and you shoot a bull in the butt with a BB gun and then you run. Did that too when I was a kid. You know? It was fun. Of course, I did it on the other side of the barbed wire electric fence. Normal people do not get in grass and, and let the dew get all over them and they wake up with the cows and they're eating. This is, this is a... A, a literal disorder, I forgot the name of it, but there's a disorder that comes upon people that causes them to think that they're actually like a barn animal. And God struck him with this, this madness. Also, seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. That's humiliation. The idea here is that you are going to stay in this madness, expulsion, isolation, until you realize that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and all this. Doesn't that sound like, uh, son, go to your room until you figure out what you've done, and then when you get it, you let me know, we'll have a conversation, I'll let you out of your room. Seven periods of time, probably seven years, uh, Seven hours, your nails aren't going to grow like that. I don't know if they'd be that long and tore up and nasty in seven months. I think it's seven years. Verse 33 describes how the word, quote-unquote, was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar or how he experienced expulsion, isolation, madness, and humiliation. 
It includes uh, some rather grotesque details. Uh, during the seven-year period, his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers. Immediately, I was thinking of 1982 with feathered hair. Did anyone have feathered hair? Nobody in here had feathered hair. I had feathered hair. Come on. Feathering your hair was the big thing to do in the 80s. It was massive. If you didn't have feathered hair and pinned jeans, you didn't belong on the planet, at least in this hemisphere. So his hair grew long enough to where it was, you know, kind of drapey. And then the, the nasty part is that his nails were like bird's claws. Okay? And that's kind of, kind of disgusting, but it shows that there was more time than seven days or probably seven months or seven hours. He was out there for a while, but the whole purpose of that was humiliation. Uh, it's, it's likely that the, the longer a prideful person stays in a chastisement or difficult season, it's, it's more likely that they'll come to their senses if they're in it for a while, right? Sometimes you, you've got to be in a situation for a while until you actually learn the lesson, right? Don't be like me when you... Discipline your kids, and you ground them for a month. 45 minutes later, they've been liberated. And then they go right back to doing what they were doing. And they don't have eagle's claws or feathered hair. Follow through with it, parents. Follow through with the chastisement. God followed through with it here, and it paid huge dividends. All right, number three. So we have the sentence, we have the pride. Now, number three, we've got the king's conversion. Now, this is where it gets really, really exciting because the chastisement, not too much. Verses 34 through 35, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar speaking from first person again, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, right? I lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation all the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? This is an amazing, amazing passage right here. This section, these, these two verses are incredible. I'm reminded of some of the Psalms where this, there's this massive explosion of doxology and, and exaltation of God and who he is and his sovereignty, beauty, power, glory. And that's one of these statements here. And I'm not sure if Christians actually quote this section very often because they think, well, Nebuchadnezzar said it. I don't know if that's wise. Oh, it's very wise to recite and declare this passage, let me tell you. The whole word of God is... Is, is, is good for teaching and training and, and rebuking and controlling. Now, the Bible teaches that repentance and faith will be present in the life of a converted person, one who has truly been converted, one who uh, uh, literally knows God in the right way, in an intimate way, in a saving way, in a relational way. Repentance has to do with turning away from oneself, uh, Towards God, turning away from self, turning to God, as well as hatred of sin and love of righteousness. That's, in a nutshell, what repentance means. It means to turn away from self, turn to God for his mercy, and it's a, it's a lifelong process. It's not a single act. 
with an increasing um, hatred of sin, like, man, I can't stand it when I do this. I can't stand it when I do that. Oh, I'm so sorry that I did this. I'm so... There's a hatred of sin that's growing and welling up in the believer. There's a love of righteousness. You actually begin to really love the things of God and, and want to pursue that which pleases him and, and honestly brings you great joy. The, the law of the Lord is there for our joy. That's repentance, and that, that is a, a characteristic, a trademark of a truly converted person. An act of repentance, realizing who they are and turning to God, and then a lifelong process of it, of, of continuing to do that over and over and over and over. Faith has to do with trusting in Christ alone for salvation. It can have to do with believing the word of God, standing on the promises of God, etc., etc. Now, here's the point. We see evidence of repentance and faith in this part of Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. That's where I'm going with this. Now, let's look at his repentance first, right? A, repentance. Look at verse 30 again. Just scan up a little bit and look at verse 30. What were Nebuchadnezzar's eyes focused on? They were focused on his kingdom, Babylon. Seven years later, after God's sentence was carried out, what were his eyes focused on? Verse 34, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to what? That's repentance. He had a worldly view and vision. He was fixed on the things of the world and the things uh, that he had, he had thought that he had generated and created for his own glory. He was focused on those things at first. And then after seven years, he lifts his eyes off of that which is in front of him and puts his eyes on heaven. That is repentance. What is heaven? Heaven is God's dwelling place. Heaven is God's kingdom right now. It's his kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar went from focusing on his kingdom to focusing on God's kingdom. That is a 180-degree turn. What theological word or term do we use to describe a 180-degree turn? Repentance. That's repentance. It's making a 180. You're headed in one direction, you flip it and go in the other direction. That's exactly what he did here. In verse 34, Nebuchadnezzar describes the moment he repented, the moment he took his eyes off himself and off his kingdom and put them on God and on God's kingdom. He just lays it out for us right there. Look at, and I'll further illustrate this, look again at verse 30, <laughs> here's another example of repentance. Who was Nebuchadnezzar? In verse 30, who was he boasting about? He was boasting about himself. He said, my mighty power, my glory, my majesty. He was a total me monster. My, 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 my. Look at what I've done. Seven years later, after God's sentence was carried out, who was he boasting about? He was boasting about God. Verse 34, for his dominion, not mine, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. Verse 34, his kingdom endures from generation to generation. What he's saying is mine won't. Verse 35, all the inhabitants of the earth are counted as, accounted as nothing. They don't have any significance on their own. They don't have any power on their own. They're nothing on their own. Verse 35, he does, speaking of God, does according to his will among 
the hosts of heaven, that's in heaven, and among the inhabitants of the earth, that's us, and none can stay his hand. Look at this statement of God's power and authority. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Nobody can even question God. And I suspect that before the seven years, Nebuchadnezzar thought to... Nebuchadnezzar? That's a new one. Nebuchadnezzar, I suspect, before the seven years began, Nebuchadnezzar thought to himself, nobody can stay my hand. Repentance. Total flip. So that's his repentance. We see it there. Now let's look at his faith. And this one's a little more challenging to pull from the text. But it's, it's there an example, believe me. The Bible sometimes speaks of faith as the ability to see. Should I repeat that? The Bible sometimes speaks of faith as one's ability, I'll say one's, one's ability to see. Faith literally enables a person to see what is spiritual, what is invisible. 2 Kings 6, 8 through 23 tells the story of Elisha and Gehazi who were standing outside Dothan or Dothan staring at the Syrian army which was vast and uber powerful. That army had come to capture them. And it's standing off in the distance ready to march, ready to snatch up Elisha and his servant. Elisha was calm, cool, collected. He was fine. Mikahazai was totally freaking out. What are we going to do? Do you not see what's before us? We are, we are toast. We are in big trouble here. We're going to get killed. We're going to get captured. He's freaking out. He's wigging out. Elisha was a man of, of faith, of great faith. Basically took over the ministry after Elijah with a J. Elisha was a man of faith. He was a man of great faith. He was a prophet of God. He was a special, unique individual called forth by God to prophesy against those nations, while Gehazi was not. Gehazi was a a normal guy, an apprentice, young Padawan learner of the great Elisha, and he just did not have the kind of faith that Elisha had. Because of faith, Elisha could see that he and Gehazi were surrounded by angels in chariots of fire who were there to protect them. All Gehazi could see was Elisha and the Syrian army. That's all he could see. Elisha then prayed for God to open the eyes of Gehazi, open the eyes of Gehazi, which has to do with giving him faith the ability to actually see and discern what was before him. God granted Elisha's request. Gehazi was filled with faith. And he immediately saw the angels and the chariots and the fire. And he was put at ease. Not another word comes out of him. Oh, what will we do? I know what we'll do now. Faith gave Gehazi the ability to see spiritually. To see what he could not see. Jesus connected faith with seeing in Matthew 23, verse 24, when he called the religious leaders of his day, the Pharisees, the scribes, those guys, when he called them blind guides. 
Why were they blind guides? Did they not have physical sight? No, they had vision. They could see. They were standing in front of Jesus, surveying and looking and measuring. And they would walk down the street. They didn't have a little pole. They didn't have little things on the corners going beep, beep, beep. You know, so they could know what direction. They, these men could see physically. Why did he call them blind guides if they could see? Because they did not have faith in him. They did not have the truth. They did not possess the eyes of faith to discern and understand the teachings of Jesus Christ and to submit to him as Messiah. They were blind guides because they did not have true faith and because they led others with their poisonous version of truth. You see, those who believe in Jesus Christ by faith have spiritual sight, the ability to see and savor the things of God, the ability to discern, the ability to see the world rightly, the ability to peer into heaven. Those who do not have faith in Jesus are spiritually blind and cannot please God. It is impossible to please God apart from faith, it says in Scripture. Now, how is this stuff connected with verse 34a? When Nebuchadnezzar lifted his eyes to heaven, the spiritual dwelling place and kingdom of God, he was showing that he had faith, the ability to see and respond to God rightly. There's the connection. I think that's a pretty amazing truth. It's right there in the Word, but it's not as easy to see. When Nebuchadnezzar looked up, when he looked up, he was looking through new eyes, eyes of faith. He had become like Gehazi or like Saul of Tarsus when the scales fell from his eyes, Acts 9.18. One of my favorite hymns puts it like this, I once was lost, but now I'm found was what? Blind, but now I see. You see the connection between faith and seeing? It's all throughout Scripture. I'm not making this stuff up. It'd be a really cool, neat, you know, extrapolation. Uh, Either way, but I'll tell you what, it's true. Faith and sight, they're synonymous in spiritual terms. Verses 34 and 35 describe Nebuchadnezzar's repentance and faith, which together validate his conversion. Okay? So what I'm telling you is that if you are, have been truly converted, your, your life will be characterized by both repentance and faith, not one without the other. And we've got to ask the question, is your life marked by repentance and faith? Do you find yourself turning to God and hating sin and trusting in Jesus alone each day? Not one time, each day? Is that kind of an ongoing thing for you? As you discover more about yourself and your tendencies and your idolatries, and you say, I don't want any of this garbage, and you turn to God, I I believe in Jesus. He's my Savior. He's my all in all. He's the King of kings, Lord of lords. He's it. Is that what your life looks like? Do you love righteousness, which basically means doing right, doing that which pleases God? Remember the Luther quote from a couple weeks ago? And by the way, that's him on the front of your bulletin. It's not George Washington holding the declaration because today's the first section of the Politics and Church uh, series. I've got asked that question like three or four times today. I didn't even know who the dude was. 
I'm like, he looks kind of like a politician, but I think he's a reformer because this is Reformation Month. It's actually Luther. You remember the Luther quote from a couple weeks ago? We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. What does that mean? It means the faith that saves will be accompanied by repentance. It will be accompanied by the fruits of the Spirit. It will be accompanied by James 2.17, good deeds. If we have faith but no repentance, we have not been converted If we have repentance but no faith, we have not been converted. In fact, all we're doing is being religious. Repentance and faith will be present in the life of a converted person. Make sure you have both. Make sure, let me boil it down. Make sure you love Jesus. He's it. You love him. And make sure that you hate sin. Just boil it right down. Let's just get it down to the the meltdown point, the finished product there, the the little nugget of truth. Boom. They used to say that at Big Valley to my kids all the time. Let me give you a little nugget of truth. A little nugget of truth. You love Jesus above all. That's faith. You're trusting in him for for the abundant life now and for future life, eternal life, what's going to come to you. Talked about it yesterday to some people. You hate sin. That's it, man. Nebuchadnezzar showed that he had both right there in that text. Number four, the king's restoration, verse 36. At the same time, my reason returned to me. This is Nebuchadnezzar speaking of himself. My reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. Okay, he's not boasting right there. It sounds like he is, but he's not. But I tell you what, if you're going to be a king of a kingdom, you've you got to be majestic and glorious or you don't have a very serious kingdom. Okay, so his reason, when the reason came back to him, the, uh, and, and for the glory of his kingdom, his majesty and splendor returned to him. My counselors and my lords sought me, his previous servants and all them, the wise men, all that. And I was established in my kingdom. And look at what he says here. He adds this to it. This ain't part of the deal, man. But it is part of the deal when we're dealing with a merciful, gracious, all-loving, good-giving, generous God, right? And still, and still, say it out loud, and still. And still more greatness was added to me. Bonus round. After his conversion, God restored Nebuchadnezzar to his throne and kingdom. It happened in stages, which began after God removed the madness and returned his reason, right? Stage 1, verse 36a, my majesty and splendor returned to me. Stage 2, verse 36b, my counselors and my lords sought me. His whole administration came back to him. Verse, uh, actually, stage 3, verse 36c, I was established in my kingdom. That's what he means to be restored and rooted down and grounded into it, like unshakable in a sense. It was, he was back in it to win it. It's all God. And then you've got that bonus stage, right? Verse 36D, and still more greatness was added to me. What does that remind you of? Job? Anyone read the book of Job? Anyone looked at how he suffered tremendous disaster? And I'll tell you what, that guy did not, was not walking around in a bunch of pride. What he experienced, he didn't bring on himself. He was a righteous man. But what happened at the end of his long and challenging and difficult season in which God was using Job to prove to the devil who's a Nimrod that my servants like Job don't just worship me because I provide for them, they do it because they love me. Totally proved that point to the devil. Devil walks away with his tail between his legs, ashamed. 
But what happened at the end of that whole process? He had more kids than he had before, more possessions, more everything. That's what it sounds like to me. Still more greatness was added to me, Nebuchadnezzar says. That's his restoration. He's brought back, but not only is he brought back to where he was, but he's brought back to where he was at a higher level. Because let me tell you something, friends. Being in Jesus Christ and believing in Jesus isn't just about restoration. It is beyond restoration. It is future glory, abundant Joy, it is, it, you will be, you're not getting, what are you going to get restored back to your old way of life? No, you, you are restored back to the Eden-type relationship that we had with God before the fall. And let me tell you, that was where it was at. That was the best, that was your best life now, before the fall. And, and in Jesus, you go back to that in a sense, the best that God has for his children so it's not just about, oh, I got my business back and I got my marriage back. That's all great, but you got more than that. And those things are good. I don't want to discount those things, man. God, is a, God repairs things. He's, he's amazing. He, he, he makes beauty from ashes. But he goes so far beyond just restoration and repairing because he is, is we can't even say it in the English language, he's beyond good. Amen. Number five, the king's praise, verse 37. Look at this. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor. All three words just mean to glorify him. The king of heaven, meaning ruler, for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble Nebuchadnezzar closed his testimony, his letter, chapter 4, with praise. And I don't know, I saved it. I didn't say it before, but I don't know if you noticed or not. But he actually opened his testimony with praise in verse 3. Praise is the bookends. It's amazing. Notice what he wrote, some of the things that he wrote here. For all his works are right and his ways are just. What does that tell us? That tells us that Nebuchadnezzar did not hold a grudge against God for putting him, in through, putting him through seven years of expulsion, isolation, madness, and humiliation. He did not blame God for his trouble. His statement shows that he accepted responsibility for his actions, and he believed that God was right and just to chastise him. That's part of his confession right here. And that is, that is the attitude and those are the words of a truly converted person. They will say, God was right all along. He is just and I deserved what I had coming to me. I brought it upon myself. That's what he says right here. So many of us go through difficulties and trials and, and rather than you know, giving an honest assessment of what's going on in our lives and looking at our own responsibility in some of these things. And sometimes things befall us that are not our fault or our doing. But one of the first things that we tend to do, a mechanism, is that when trouble strikes, that we, we, we blame God. Well, he, he caused this. He did these things. That's a natural mechanism. I get it. This guy could have easily came out of the seven years and been... Hard-hearted. I can't believe what God put me through. That was so unfair. 
I did not deserve that. I suspect that if he had that attitude, he would have never came out of the chastisement. You haven't learned, my son. Keep chewing your cud. How many of us have blamed God? Oh, he, he caused my marriage to explode. He, he blew us apart. Wasn't the fact that you were cheating on your wife? That didn't have anything to do with it, right? Oh, I, I never thought of it like that. He caused this to happen, and he owes me. I think 99% of the time it's stuff that we bring on ourselves, and we got to learn to take ownership. Countless people right now that have come and gone from the church because they're blaming God for their foolishness, for not taking ownership over their sin. His statement shows that he accepted responsibility and that he believed that God was just and right to do to him what he had done, and God is just and right to do whatever God pleases to do to anyone at any time. That's his statement. That can only come from a man who's learned something deep. At the end of verse 37, it just multiplies. At the end of verse 37, he displayed insane courage and transparency. He literally confessed his sin before his entire kingdom when he wrote, those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. You think he was talking about somebody else, some other example, or do you think he was talking about himself? That's a confession. God will bring low those who walk in pride. Now, he didn't follow it with, that's why I'm writing to you, that I was the dummy that did this. They didn't think like that back then, or at least speak like that. But that's who he had in mind. He was thinking about himself. That is transparency. That is another character trait of a truly converted, repentant, faith-filled, Bible-believing believer. Oh, God can bring you low, my friend. Why don't you get yourself low before he brings you low? I'm telling you, these are the words, these are the actions of a man who, who truly experienced the power, the grace, the mercy of the Most High. They are. Begin to wrap it up a little bit here, but God used... God used Nebuchadnezzar's rise, his removal, and his restoration for multiple purposes. Number one was to admonish and warn the Chaldean people. Okay, what I'm telling you is that Nebuchadnezzar went through these things not just for Nebuchadnezzar, but that God would use what he went through as an example to teach and admonish and warn everyone in his kingdom, especially the Judeans who had been exiled to his kingdom. Listen to these parallels. Ponder these parallels. Nebuchadnezzar became great and mighty. The Judeans became great and mighty. Nebuchadnezzar became prideful and was exiled from his kingdom, right? He was removed. The Judeans became prideful and were exiled from their kingdom, Jerusalem. See the parallels? After seven years, Nebuchadnezzar repented and was restored to his kingdom. If the Jews at that time were looking at what was going on with him, they might have been thinking, he repented, look at the action, look at what happened, look what came around. That's what they were supposed to learn. And here's what's really interesting. If you fast forward a little bit, 70 years later, the Judeans repented 
and were restored to Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar's rise and fall continues to serve as a warning to all who pridefully reject the Most High as sovereign over all, and yet Nebuchadnezzar's restoration continues to serve as a reminder of God's mercy that he restores the repentant. That's the broader message of chapter 4. God used Daniel over a period of 40 years to lead Nebuchadnezzar to faith in him. Is God using you to influence someone for Christ, to lead them to faith? You can't give them faith, but you can certainly model and preach it to them. And I've been blessed with the opportunity to, to be there when God converted people, and it's an amazing thing. Are you currently in that process with someone? Are you influencing someone for Christ? Hey, if you're in it, man, and it's hard, and it is, I think, be prayerful, be patient, be kind, be transparent. The lesson for us here in chapter 4 in Nebuchadnezzar's testimony is that God has the power to humble and transform anyone, even kings. And he uses ordinary people like you and I in the process to bring that about. That's amazing. If you are not currently seeking to influence others for Christ, choose someone in your sphere of influence who needs to be introduced to the Most High God and go for it. Yesterday, I had an opportunity to step out of my comfort zone and preach Christ to about 50 or 60 people that I did not know at a funeral. And I'll tell you what, I had an amazing time. It was amazing. Several guests came to me afterwards and thanked me for the message and one guy asked me for a copy of my script. I thought that was interesting. I thought, are you going to pick it apart? I didn't say anything to him other than I'll email it to you. But I thought, that's interesting. Come to find out he's another pastor, and maybe he just thought he could take it and modify it and use it for himself. Who knows? I just thought that was really cool. I think the highlight for me was that after I was done preaching, and I only preached for like 20 minutes, which you guys are thinking, why don't you do that here? Nope. The highlight for me was that this sweet little old lady came up to me afterwards, walked around the podium, and said, and she did this, and, I'm like, and she gave me a hug and a kiss on the cheek. That's just so cool. I was so blessed and so filled with joy. The fact is, Christians who keep Christ to themselves or to their households miss out on the blessings that come from sharing the gospel with others. God tells us in Matthew 28 to go into the world and preach the good news. you got to do it. Now, you can do it like me and go stand in front of people you don't know and preach it. <laughs> you guys are thinking, are you kidding me? Some of you might do that. I think some of the elders, Bruce, would certainly do it. He'd just get up there and go, hi, brothers and sisters, and he'd just bust it out. You know, Carl over here would be like, um... Hi. <laughs> it's not a style. Oh, I'm not telling you. Everyone needs to be like me and go stand in front of people you don't know. That's not what I'm saying. If that's not your style, you can do what Daniel did. You can build a meaningful relationship with someone and share Christ with them over time. In fact, I think that is the best way to do it. Isn't that what Daniel did? Forty-two, what, 40 years he ministered to Nebuchadnezzar. You can do it that way. The point is that you would be doing it 
And there are a million ways to spread the good news. I just say pick one that works for you and get in there and do it. Even if it's just a coworker, just start. You know what I learned at church? Just, just start sharing truth with them. Build a meaningful relationship with someone. Truly, relationships only become meaningful when they're centered on Christ. Beyond that, they're just relationships. We want to see people get saved. We want to see people uh, obtain the eyes of faith and begin to glorify God. We want to see Nebuchadnezzars. Pick your poison. Pick your method and get to work. We're commanded to do it. And I guarantee you, I guarantee you, you will be blessed if you obey God in this way. We're always blessed richly when we obey our Father. Now, He's so good, He blesses us a lot of times when we're not obeying Him. But let me tell you, there are special, unique, specific blessings that come to the believer when they obey the Father. Just as you bless your children when they obey what you say. And, and more so, because we're talking about God who owns the cattle in a thousand hills, translation, He owns it all. You will be richly blessed when you begin to talk about Jesus with others. You will. You don't have to stand up and preach like me. You don't have to do any of that if that's not your style. Build a relationship with somebody. You already have relationships. Just add Christ to it. It's not like we're going to, hey, by the way, you want a meaningful relationship? Are you a weird pervert? No, I just love Jesus. I mean, that's going to be weird. That's not even realistic. We don't go out and just, hey, by the way, that's stupid. You already have relationships. Make them more meaningful by integrating the gospel into that relationship. Start telling them about what God is, has done for you and who he is and what he can do for anyone. Do you not know, Ernie, that God saved this wretched king? Which means that he could save someone like you. Yeah, I know you've got to have courage. You've got to be bold. But just start gossiping the gospel like they did in the early church. You will see God work. You will see fruit. It's amazing. As we um, approach the tables on the sides, just we need to remember what these elements in this time symbolizes. It is a, it is a moment of confession. That we confess our sin before we even mess with that stuff. You don't go to the table with dirty hands. You know, wash up through confession. Lord, this is what I've been doing. I've been squandering my time. I haven't been preaching the gospel. Lord, I've been squandering my money. I haven't been generous giving to the church. I haven't done what I'm supposed to do in this area, this area, this area. Confess these things before you even mess with that stuff. And then remember what they're about. The return of the Lord. The gospel of Jesus Christ. The broken body, the shed blood for the remission of your sin. Just confess your sin. Remember what those things are about. Come, come to it. Here's one of the things that scares the tar out of me sometimes, and it scares some of our elders, and that's that after we preach a message and we talk about communion a little bit, it, it, what scares me is how quickly people get up and run over there and start drinking and eating. That just frightens me. Because it, it tells me that you're, 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 you're either Jesus because you don't need to confess your sin, and I know that's not true. Or you're not taking what you're involved in seriously, and you're not taking those things seriously. 
The person who, who enters into this moment and takes those things without counting the cost, without thinking about what they're doing, without being in a reverent state, a confessional state, kind of a broken state, the person who does that, who comes to those things frivolously, brings judgment upon themselves. And what does judgment for the Christian mean? It means chastisement from God. Does that mean I'm going to go out into a field for seven years? I don't know. But it ain't good because it's not pleasing to God. And your number one goal is to do what? Glorify Him. So glorify Him during this moment. Be transparent. Confess your sin. Be real. Don't play games. And you know what? If you've got stuff that you need to deal with that you're not dealing with or that you can't deal with right now, then don't take the elements. Take care. Go to your brother. Same thing applies to bringing an offering. I would rather have no money to pay bills if the money's coming in for the wrong reasons. We got to check ourselves before we wreck ourselves. When we bring an offering to the Lord, we need to make sure that things are right between us and our relationships are good. We're not in sin in that. When we come to the elements over here, we got to make sure that then we've confessed and that we're, you know, that we're seeking the Lord here and we're remembering what he did and we're reflecting upon ourselves and submitting to him. It's, It's so important that we do this. And I wonder how many times we've just run over there and just, ah, oh, it was good. And then, and then you go right back home and start, start looking at stuff on the computer. Or you go right back into your office and, 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 you know, and you've got somebody there, there's some tension and all that, and that's dumb idiot. And you got issues with your spouse. How many times have I said that we shouldn't be just hearers of the word, but what? If we don't, let me tell you something right now. I'm going to tell you something right now. All right? I'm going to get up here on my high horse. Christians right now believe that the greatest threat to local churches, to the church itself, they believe the greatest threat to churches, to the church, to RHC and all this, they think the greatest threat is the federal government, the Supreme Court, and the state. The greatest threat to the church is you. It's us. When we don't take the things of God seriously, when we turn to idolatry and keep our money and these things to ourselves, when we disobey the Lord and screw up the fellowship and everything else, when we do that, when we live in the flesh instead of walk in the Spirit, we don't have to worry about the Fed. we got to worry about one another. How many local churches have closed their doors because of the federal government? I've never even heard of one. But how many local small churches or big churches have closed their doors because of the people? We don't need to fret the Fed or the courts or the state. We need to be mindful of us. And we are in a situation right now We are in a financial situation right now. And it ain't because God cut off the supply. It's because some of you are not obeying the Lord. I have never been involved with the money at this church. Never. I've deliberately kept myself out of it just to to make sure that, that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm above reproach and I don't look like some weird hoarder that wants all this money. I've stayed out of it. I've stayed out of it. But now I know things and I'm appalled. 
by what I've learned. Some of us here have been a part of this church since day one and haven't given a dime. It's time to clean house. What would you do at your house if you had a wayward kid that was jacking it up? You would lovingly correct him, wouldn't you? Or would you just let him bring down the house? The time has come. We need to start being doers of the word, not just hearers. Fat cat couch potato Christians, I don't want them here. They don't belong in the church. It's time to get serious. It's time to get serious about the things of God. Numero uno here needs to get serious about God in some ways. Are you guys with me? Do you want to keep doing this? Do you want to have a place where you can come and be yourself and hear the word and worship God and have great fellowship? Do you want to keep doing this? Because sometimes I feel like people here don't. I just want you to know that, that this can go away. And the way that it'll go away is if we don't all do our part. I don't want to sound mean or harsh. I'm just... <sighs> Daddy's upset. And, 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 and some of you have, have been above and beyond generous and sacrificial. And if it weren't for you, we wouldn't be in this room. And how sad is it that, that a, a few have to carry it all? It's not right. Everyone, everyone in this church can give of their time, talent, and treasure. I will, you will never hear me tell you how much money you should give. But you will hear me say that you better give cheerfully. I ain't trying to drive anyone into compulsion here. I'm saying be responsible. Honor the Lord first. Honor your church. Time, talent, and treasure. Invest it. And some of you do this extraordinarily. Some of you do it a little bit. Some, some don't do it at all. And it's time. It is time. We're talking about moving. We need to move. Even if everyone in this church gave generously, I think we'd probably still have to move. But what I don't want to do is, is, is move to another location and take that poisonous, toxic element with us. And that could be some of you. Obey the Lord. And so... <laughs> Consider these things as you approach the tables. If, if you know that, that, that you're, that, and I know who some of you are, if you know that you have not been right with God and you've been robbing from him in any of those areas, you better think twice. It's tough love. If I didn't care, I wouldn't say anything. And what might happen is that you just get a letter saying we've just gone as far as we can go. You know, I have to battle myself to stay in this when the attendance is so low and the giving and everything's so off. I have to fight the temptation just to say, I think it's time for Rachel and I to move on. And then I think of, of certain individuals and I think, oh, don't give up. Don't. And then I think of other ones that, that, that just 
act like they don't care. And it's like, oh. this ain't about me. If this was about me, we'd been done a long time ago. It ain't about me. Can we? And here's the thing. There's some people that aren't here today that need to hear this, so this is probably going to get repeated, and you guys are going to be just go like this. Or maybe you need to listen again because, like Nebuchadnezzar, you didn't get it the first time. But this is just, 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 this is just love, man. I want, I want, to, I want to, to, to continue to be with you. We all do. I think we do. Maybe some of us have just gotten off track. It's not deliberate. We can get back there. 